Welcome to a special message with Michael Anthony at CourageMatters.com. Today, we have a special guest speaker, Ravi Zacharias, who spoke live at Grace Fellowship in York, Pennsylvania, where Pastor Michael Anthony serves as the lead pastor. So hold on to your seats as Ravi Zacharias preaches from God's Word. Everybody, you can grab a seat. The more I talk, the less Dr. Ravi Zacharias speaks. So Dr. Zacharias, I'd like to welcome you up on the platform, please. Would you give a warm welcome to Dr. Ravi Zacharias? I like an introduction like that. It's so brief that there's no possibility of error. Because <laughs> I have received more doctorates while being introduced than I ever received them while going to school. And done more things than I ever thought I did. So it's not my name, although one person once wrote to me some years ago and questioned whether this was really my name. Uh, and said if I had proof. Uh, I didn't bother sending him the proof, but thankfully I do have the proof in India. They fold it over like this, and my full name is Frederick Anthony Ravi Kumar Zacharias. Where my mother came up with that name, I don't know. <laughs> Although Anthony was because my mother was hoping I'd be a saint someday, and Frederick was my grandfather's name. That's how two of them got thrown in. I'm re- I've never given myself such an introduction, but I'm just catching my breath to get ready to speak to you. Thank you for being here on this beautiful night, and uh, here we are on a Saturday night. I know many people are busy on the weekends. When people tell you to have a nice weekend, they're not really thinking of you going to church on a Saturday night, but I'm glad you're here for this meeting. Uh, my colleague Thomas and uh, one other friend are here, and actually a few others in the audience. Uh, it's, it was quite ironic as I sat down there, I was thinking about when I started my ministry in the 70s, uh, I was pretty young then and there was less snow on the roof. Uh, there was a different foliage and more foliage than I have now. But I did a lot of meetings around this area. I'm licensed and ordained with the Christian and Missionary Alliance. And I know at least at that time they had a very fine church out here and then did a lot with the Brethren in Christ. So I lived in Niagara Falls, Ontario at that time, came over quite often. It's nice to have finished, what, 45 years of ministry now, and uh, the Lord has been so good over these four decades. I'm part of a team now of about uh, 70-some full-time apologists based in 15 countries and every continent, and even as I'm speaking to you, I have no doubt that some of my colleagues somewhere else on this earth are also presenting a defense of the Christian faith. When you're here for a short period of time, you always ask yourself the question, you know, uh, where do you begin and how do you pull it all together? And uh, your, your pastor, by the way, I must compliment you, he's a very determined man. He's a very persuasive man. Uh, I felt if I said no to him, I'd have to explain something to the Lord on judgment day. <laughs> so I decided I better get it over with here and show up. Uh, but he and Janet came over some time ago along with uh, family, and it was a wonderful evening, the afternoon we spent there at lunch. Thank you for inviting me, Michael. It's good to be here. 
Uh, where do you begin? Where do you end up? How do you tie it all together as itinerants? We're always there for a brief period of time. Unlike a pastor who has the responsibility of building line upon line, week upon week, month upon month, year upon year, which is a very difficult task to do as they teach, we come sort of uh, with a shotgun approach and uh, just give you one or two very thought-provoking messages and I struggled with how exactly and what to bring to you. You know, the, the Irish have a very convoluted way of saying everything. I had a lot of Irish friends in Toronto. My wife's from Toronto, we live in Atlanta now. But the Irish will never say, how are you? They will say, is that yourself? And then you have to pause and ask yourself if this is indeed yourself or whether you are impersonating being somebody else. But the story is told of this person who was driving along a farm area in Ireland and he saw a farmer and he said, I'm lost, I need directions. The farmer said, where are you going? And he gave him the location. The farmer said to the Irish farmer said to him, if that's where you're going, this is not where I would begin. <laughs> In other words, you're so far off the mark, buddy, you better retrace your steps and then get on to the right road. And your pastor wanted me particularly to address, if at all possible, I won't do it directly, but I will do it maybe in an Irish way, uh, talk about how we live at a time like this in political history. So much is happening globally. I've been an itinerant for about four and a half decades and I've told my team, I've told my family, when I talk to my kids, I tell them this, that in four and a half decades of travel, I have never seen the world in such chaos as it is right now. I don't say that just in order to gain your attention or just to sound melodramatic, but really, if you look at some of the major countries of the world and the challenges they are facing and the potential risks that they are taking all the time. I visit Korea, South Korea quite often and in every hotel room in Seoul, every hotel that I've ever been in there, there are gas masks in every uh, closet of every hotel room. They're always prepared for something of a cataclysmic nature that could take place out there. If you look, look at the election results of some of the major countries, India, the Philippines, France, here, uh, you can go down the line. Very few news people actually predicted how it was all going to end up because they were not always listening to the heartbeat of the people. And whatever else the people were saying, there was one thing they were uttering everywhere. We're not content with the way things are. We want to see some kind of change. The problem is oftentimes we can make mistakes in the process as well. My favorite uh, romantic poet, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, put it in these words. If men could only learn from history what lessons it might teach us, but passion and party blind our eyes, and the light which experience gives us is a lantern on the stern which shines only on the waves behind us. And the light which experience, the, and that which experience gives us is like a lantern on the stern which shines only on the waves behind us. In other words, we learn from after the fact, oftentimes from blunders or making decisions which we wished we had never made. It was Santayana who said, he who refuses to learn from history is forced to repeat its mistakes. But history is an enormous story being written on the landscape of time. And it happens that you and I are living at a time such as this. We must understand what it is that history really 
teaches us in the long run. As uh, Santayana said, he who refuses to learn from history is forced to repeat its mistakes. We do not wish to repeat the mistakes, but ideologies come and go, and I think it was Martin Luther who said, history is like a drunken man reeling from one wall to the other, knocking himself senseless with every hit. It was uh, Blake, I think, who made the, Wordsworth, who made the comment about Milton. Milton, thou shouldest be living at this hour. England hath need of thee. She is a fen of stagnant waters, altar, sword, and pen. Fireside and the heroic wealth of hall and bower have forfeited their ancient English dower of happiness. We are selfish men. Milton, England hath need of thee. We have become like stagnant waters. We have lost that, oh, that uh, benefit of the ancient English dower of inward happiness. We are selfish people. And of course, once upon a time, in the words of uh, Blake, he said, and did those feet in ancient times walk upon England's mountain green? And was the holy lamb of God on England's pleasant pastures seen? I will not cease from mental flight from mental fight, nor shall my sword sleep in my hand till we have built Jerusalem on England's green and pasture land. So once upon a time, they were hoping it would be the feet of the, the Lord once again walking and walking this time in England. And then they look back and say, what has really happened to the nation? The truth of the matter is, ladies and gentlemen, that we often look at history in the eye in a way that we think it is the first time we are facing such enormous problems. We are in one sense, and I want to point out just that distinctive sense, because if you go back to the garden and you go back to the first book of Genesis, by the time you reach Genesis chapter 10, every rotten, horrible, stinking thing you can think of has already taken place. But there's one very significant thing into which God intervened when they were building a tower to establish a name for themselves. And what God did that time was strike that tower down because unity in pride is a deadly thing. Unity in pride is a deadly thing. When you gather men and women with arrogance and power and you come united with one goal in mind, self-aggrandizement, it could be devastating. And now for the first time, I believe, since the Tower of Babel, the world is speaking the same language. God confused the languages then. We are speaking the same language, and now it is not in propositions, it is in pictures. <coughs> now it is in media. <coughs> and the ability to disseminate information is enormous. One line, one stanza, one word of a song can go across the earthly terrain and within minutes can be viral and millions can be reading the same line. This is the Tower of Babel today. We are speaking the same language, language and we are able to disseminate this clenched fist idea that we are going to pull down the establishment and somehow reposition something of our own doing and our own edifice. This is the deadly change from the years gone by. People were as evil before as they are now. 
Only now we have the capacity to replicate and multiply at exponential speed as the weapons of destruction pile up at the same time. But let me take you back two millennia to a writer who is describing what, was, what Rome was like. Religion, philosophy, and society had passed through every stage to that of despair. Without tracing the various phases of ancient thought, it may be generally said that in Rome at least, the issue lay between Stoicism and Epicureanism. The one flattered its pride, the other, the other gratified its sensuality. The one was in accordance with the original national character, the other with its later decay and corruption. Both ultimately led to atheism and despair. The one by turning all higher aspirations selfward, the other by quenching them in the enjoyment of the moment. The one by making the extinction of all feeling and self-deification, the other the indulgence of every passion and worship of matter, its ideal. And he goes on to describe what that looked like. It would be unsavory to describe how far the worship of indecency was carried, how public morals were corrupted by the mimic representations of everything that was vile, and even by the pandering of a corrupt art. The personation of gods, oracles, divinations, astrology, uh, all contributed to the general decay. It has been rightly said that the idea of conscience as we understand it was destroyed then. Absolute right did not exist. Might was right. The social relations exhibited, if possible, even deeper corruption. The sanctity of marriage had ceased. Dissipation and general dissoluteness led at, la at last to an almost entire cessation of marriage. Abortion and the exposure of murder of newly born children were common and tolerated. Unnatural vices which even the greatest philosophers practiced, if not advocated, attained proportions which defied description. That was of Rome 2,000 years ago. It defied description and all that was going on. And I think of just that one line Marriage, as they understood it, almost ceased to have a point of reference for definition. And if you don't have the strength of a home, and you don't have the strength of the marital bond, what is left in the finer print of society's relationships? Such was what happened. And when you know what the early church had come into, and the early church was dealing with three rigorous philosophies, Greek philosophy, Roman philosophy, and Jewish tradition and teaching. And as the early church began to preach and teach, they began to face opposition and threatenings, and their first martyr was a godly man by the name of Stephen. I want to read for you his closing message before he was martyred and go into my message for this evening. He gave a protracted talk, and he closed it with these words. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by men. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all of these things? You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered even him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. Finally, as the witnesses gathered and the stoning began, it says this, while they were stoning him, 
Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. That is the end of Romans 7. We put in the chapter divisions. They did not. And the first verse of Romans 8 says, and Saul was there giving approval to his death. How ironic that the man who was going to write one-third of the New Testament was standing there giving approval to the death of the first martyr of the church, Stephen. And in that alone, I find an extraordinary lesson so that we never lose heart because we never realize what is actually happening in what may seem like a dark moment which God actually has as a hinge of history in raising up a voice that can change the course and change the tide of history. No one person in the early church changed history more than the Apostle Paul did. And that's why from Saul of Tarsus to his conversion and the conquering of Rome and then the Western world through Augustine and so on and so forth, you see how the gospel ultimately came to Europe and then out here even to the North American shores. But as I look at Stephen's message and that protracted talk about history, see, we in America can't really live too long in the moment because history here moves so fast. We've got to have a mental process almost like a spinal cord made out of plastic napkin rings. Click, 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 click all the time. We cannot focus on any story because you go to bed with one story and you wake up to another dramatic story and you say, how am I going to process, process all of this? I was barely able to dwell on what happened yesterday. And now like a tidal wave, a flood of new news has approached. So we, can't, we don't think of history the way a lot of Asians do. The story is told of a man, man who was a Westerner who was sitting next to the late Zhou Enlai, the former premier of China years ago. And before he went, he asked a friend who from China, how, how do I make a conversation with this man? He said, well, the Chinese love history. So just talk history with him. So halfway through the dinner, the man looked at Zhou Enlai and said, what do you think of the French Revolution? <laughs> and Joe and Lai paused and said, too soon to tell. <laughs> 200 years is too soon for them to assess the impact of an event. We assess it within an hour. Everything happens and you've got five people sitting around a table explaining everything to you. <laughs> this is how we live. And they look at us and say, how naive that people are living with just a moment. So Stephen, very Eastern in his approach, is not going to live for the moment. He's taking them back all the way to five millennia ago and especially to uh, 1450 before the Exodus took place. And so he's taking them at least 1,500 years to put it all together for them and say, you've never understood that God did not intend to live in buildings. And he explains the whole message to them. Three things that he gives us that are relevant for the time. Number one, he saw the finger of God in all of history and Christ as a central figure. He saw the finger of God in all of history and Christ as a central figure. In other words, if he wanted to interpret what history was, he had to go to the person of Christ and then hark backwards and move forwards as well. 
Do you remember that walk along Emmaus Road after the death of Jesus? The disciples are walking and this third personality comes beside them. They have no clue who he is. And so he asks them, what are you two boys so despondent about? And one of them looks at him and says, are you the only one in Israel who doesn't understand what it is that's happened? When in fact, he was the only one in Israel who did understand what it is that had just happened. And the Bible tells us he began to unpack for them all of God's vision for history. I say to you again that I've often reflected upon if there was one message I could be present in during our life's, our Lord's earthly sojourn, I think that would have been it. Yes, there are many to choose from. His Sermon on the Mount and all of the other fantastic talks. But for him to put all of the pieces together in one explanation was so profound for these disciples that one of them said to him, we'll buy you dinner. Will you come on in and have dinner with us? He sat down for dinner. They were mesmerized by all the knowledge that he had, but they were totally overwhelmed by a simple thing that he did. He took a piece of bread and broke it. As soon as he did that, they knew who he was. Because when he had done it before, he said, as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, in the present. You proclaim the Lord's death in the past until he come in the future. He connected all the dots of time, past, present, and future in his death and resurrection. No wonder they ran back and no wonder they met the disciples equally enchanted and enthralled. They too had seen and touched and felt and these boys realized time is a gift and it is the unfolding drama of redemption that points to the past, takes us to the present, and they see the finger of God in all of history and Christ as its central figure. Once you recognize how sovereign God is and how present God is and how timeless God is and how timely God is in his coming in to meet you and me, then you realize that while we may be the first ones to see it in the now, God lives in the eternal now and is always unfolding for you and me what it is that he, that he intends for the nations to learn. It is our stubborn wills that refuse to learn it. And we fail to understand that God has taught us that nation after nation that chooses to move in its own way is only flirting with extinction. Babylon came, Rome came, Greece came, Medo-Persia came. One after another, they all went. You can go to the Sinaitic Desert today or the desert that you can walk across from Cairo and start walking, going into the desert and looking 2,000 miles into the distance. And as you ride on a horse or whatever, you'll see crestfallen statues of one-time demagogues who ruled, who have come and gone. We may think that America will never see its end because we are so powerful. But if you forget God, we will find out he will find it just as easy to take us off the radar screen of time in our strength as well. He has done it before. In fact, he did one of the most difficult things he ever chose to do. He set his name in Shiloh at first 
and Shiloh fell. And then the people said to Jeremiah, Jerusalem will never fall because he set his name here. Say not unto yourselves, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord is here. Jeremiah says, if you don't believe what God is going to do with Jerusalem, go to Shiloh and see what he did there. The city that was ever cleaving to his heart is a city he allowed to be plundered and left in despair because they had turned their backs upon him. If you see the finger of God in all of history and Christ as its central figure, you will understand that God has a way of working across time and he teaches us what he wants us to know. In Deuteronomy 8, he told us what it is that he wants of a nation, the same thing that he wants of an individual. Three things, humility, spirituality, and faith. He wants us to have a humble heart. He wants us to know that we shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And he wants us to know that in the wanderings in the wilderness, he will still protect us and still take care of us as we trust him, as we trust him and reflect upon him and lean upon him. And so this nation has to learn one way or the other that we're not all powerful, only God is. And only in the understanding of Jesus Christ and his mission, can we connect the dots of what history is all about? The finger of God in all of history and Christ as its central figure. Secondly, they had learned how they could harness an arena of persecution and change it into a platform of opportunity. How to harness an arena of persecution and change it into a, into a platform of opportunity. I have never known when the church has been so attacked. I, as a Christian apologist, have my own share of that. There are people who would love to see my life come to an end, who do all kinds of things to intimidate and threaten and wish you off the face of the earth. I'm just an ordinary guy, just one person. But it, I, can, I console myself by the fact that it is not that they're against me, it is against the message that I am preaching. It is the message that we bring. It is the message that we hold. And when you think of how the church has been persecuted across time, even as I speak today, there are people in the Middle East who suffer and struggle, imprisoned for their faith. Some have their lives even terminated, not just the Middle East. I even know of nations that I shall leave unnamed where I know people who are being tormented and tortured and persecuted and suffer for his name's sake. But if you can transform persecution into a platform of opportunity or pain into a platform of opportunity. There's a gentleman sitting in the audience here whom I met with half an hour before the meeting. He, I, I don't think he'll mind me mentioning his story. But when he wrote his story, I said, I need to, I'll meet with you, let's have a time of prayer. He's driven a fair distance to come and spend that time. He was diagnosed a little over a year or something, a few, maybe a little over that, he was diagnosed with a very serious form of cancer, stage three or four. He's a young man in his mid-30s. But added to that, he developed serious back issues to a point where he lives in such chronic pain that he simply cannot manage with extreme medication to relieve that pain. And he said, I'm coming to see you because I heard you talk about the fact that with your back, when it was broken, how you sat in the car and would put your head on the steering wheel and cry because of the pain. 
He said, when I would hear you say that, I knew exactly what you were talking about because it's exactly what I have gone through and they cannot fix it. They cannot, he said, worse than the cancer. I'm willing to even face the death of cancer, but it's this ailing and aching back, which every morning I say, I don't know whether I can stand, sit or lie down. And when you're in your mid thirties and you're living with that pain, I'll tell you what, my brother is a pain management specialist at the and the chairman of the pain management specialist at McMaster University in uh, Hamilton, Ontario. When he became the chair of the pain management specialty, I said, Ramesh, all of life is pain management. It's not just one department. All of life is pain management. You know that and I know that. You're either coming out of a fire or you're going into one. And when I saw that young man in his mid-thirties struggling, I knew exactly what he was going through. What do you do? How do you face it? How do you cope with physically debilitating pain? How do you face daunting attacks upon people who want to destroy you? How do you face crippling financial loss? How do you face the breakup of a family? How do you face all these things? How do we as a nation face the fact that we are so divided that you never know if you're getting the truth in the news? You don't know it. And what I see in the early church as they were persecuted, tormented, when 11 out of the 12 of them died a martyr's death, I see two or three things that are so incredibly hard to grapple with. One of them comes from the mouth of, the, of Saul to Paul. Saul of Tarsus goes to Damascus to persecute the church. He comes back a convert, and once he came to know the Lord, he described what his entire theological journey was to be. He said it in a way nobody else had said it. You see, all of the other disciples had come to Jesus in the chronological sequence, birth, life, death, resurrection. Not so Paul. He came from the resurrection and had to understand the Christ. And that's why he said that I may know him, the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being made conformable unto his death. He had to understand what the cross meant. Now he understood what the resurrection meant. Why the cross? Why the cross? And as Stephen pays with his life and the early church is trying to gather itself together after that, and as his face glowed prior to the fact that he was received into the presence of the Lord, you notice as one by one they're being elim eliminated. John is the only one who was spared a martyrdom because he too was rescued from the spot where he was to be killed and was preserved so that he could write the book of Revelation for you and me in looking at the end times and the ultimate new heavens and the new earth. But what the scriptures tell us is that his grace is sufficient for us and his strength is made perfect in our weakness. What we are taught again and again is an incredibly difficult truth and I want you to listen to me very carefully. My favorite speaker, James Stewart, in his book, The Strong Name, says it. You'll have to follow what he's saying. He takes the scriptural verse, he led captivity captive, which was quoted in Psalm 68 and then quoted again in Ephesians 4. He says this, it is a glorious phrase that he led captivity captive. The very 
triumphs of his foes, it means he used for their defeat. He compelled their dark achievements to subserve his ends, not theirs. They nailed him to the tree, not knowing that at the very act they were bringing the world to his feet. They gave him a cross, not guessing that he would make it a throne. They flung him outside the gates to die, not knowing that in that very moment they were lifting up all the gates of the universe to let the king of glory come in. They thought to root out his doctrines, not understanding that they were implanting imperishably in the hearts of men the very name they intended to destroy. They thought they had God with his back to the wall, pinned and helpless and defeated. They did not know it was God himself who had had tracked them down. He did not conquer in spite of the dark mystery of evil. He conquered through it. He did not conquer in spite of the dark mystery of evil. He conquered through it. My colleague here is with me, Thomas. He covers the globe with me. Pray for Thomas. I don't know how he has put up with me for these couple of years, traveling and wearing himself physically. I appreciate you, Thomas. I really do. Uh, because of my broken back, he helps me with my bags and all of that. But we were in Iraq a few weeks ago. And if you go to the city of Mosul, you see one church that was completely burned on the inside. And they were using the walls of that church for a rifle practice. You've got bullet marks all over that church. But as you leave the city of Mosul now, there's a cross bigger than the size of that screen. So that as you enter that city, you see the story that many Christians lived there. My wife has an artist friend who presented a picture to our office. It's the mark of a cross on a wall, even though the cross had been torn away. But the mark had been left ineradicably on the door. Even when they do away with the cross, its imprint is always there. And that's why Malcolm Muggridge said, when he found Christ, he would drive here and there and all of a sudden even if there were two pieces of timber not intended to be a cross he would see a cross in the making and understood how understand how beautiful is the message of grace and forgiveness and the sacrifice of the very son of god who endured the ultimate of indignity so that you and i could be drawn to him in a language that is so hard for us to put into words and so we put into hymns what language shall I borrow to thank you, dearest friend? For this thy dying sorrow, thy pity without end. Oh, make me thine forever, and should I fainting be, Lord, let me never, never outlive my love for thee. When I was in Beijing, not Beijing, Shanghai, a few years ago, through the Billy Graham Association and one of their men who took me there, we were in the home of the famed Chinese evangelist Wang Ming Dao. Billy Graham thought he was one of the greatest saints of years gone by. And this was, I think, in the late 80s or early 90s I was there. And I was in Shanghai with my friend Werner Berkland, because of whom I was able to meet Wang Ming Dao. Wang Ming Dao was imprisoned by Mao Zedong because he was preaching the gospel. When he was put into prison, he was so tormented and tortured that he gave up and he decided to renounce his faith. And they let him out. He couldn't live with the pain of what he'd done. 
So he walked through the streets of Beijing saying, my name is Peter, call me Peter, I have betrayed my Lord. Call me Peter, I have betrayed my Lord. Mao put him back in prison for 18 years. Mao and Wang Mingdao personally told us as we literally sat at his feet on the floor because there was no furniture there and his wife almost blind standing behind him. He said, when I first got into prison, it was so hard. But the only thing that kept me going was the words of scripture I'd memorized as a young boy. So I'd repeat those scriptures. But then I would wake up every morning, repeat those scriptures and sing the hymn. All the way my savior leads me, what have I to ask beside? Can I doubt his tender mercy who through life has been my guide? Heavenly grace, divinest comfort, hereby grace with him to dwell. For I know whatever befall me, Jesus doeth all things well. He said, first few days, the guards would try to shut me down. But then I would still sing it every morning. And I noticed they would start coming towards my window to listen to it. And if I fell ill and couldn't sing it, they would knock on my door and ask me to please sing it. And he sang it to us. And I have it in a recording in his beautiful Chinese voice, but singing in English. And he looked at me, I was a younger speaker at that time, and he said to me, always remember the privilege of being an evangelist. Now as I look back at that time and I look at China, the fastest growing church in the world. Do you think Wang Mingdao and all gave up their lives in vain? platform of an arena of persecution into a platform of opportunity. It's happening all over the world, folks. All over the world, through persecution, we see how the light is now shining in a beautiful way in those countries. The finger of God in all of history, the harnessing of persecution as an opportunity, then turning it into a platform of opportunity. And lastly, I want to leave with you the priority of a person over methodology. We may think of all the methods in the world, but I'll tell you what, God's method is a person. God's method is primarily a person. Nobody can ever take your place. Charles Wesley said, God buries his workmen, but his work goes on. We buried a colleague a few weeks ago in Nabil Qureshi at age 34. Nabil is with the Lord, but God's work goes on. One day, so will happen to me and to every one of us. But while we're on this earth, he has a work for you that no one else can do. No one else can do. You know, if Jonah had hap- if what happened to Jonah had happened in our time, we would have made him an evangelist and given him a briefcase to take pictures, 50 pictures from the inside of a whale and how to use them in evangelism. <laughs> Moses would have opened his own Bush University. <laughs> Samson would be going around issuing jawbones to his entire team, you know, David slings to everybody. No, no. Moses was unique, even though he fought God. David did all kinds of horrible things and God changed his heart and made him a man after his own heart. 
And when you see how God used even the most derelict amongst them, you know, you wouldn't actually use a lot of Old Testament characters as examples on how to build a happy home. <laughs> they were some of the most bungling individuals. And out of the 12 of them, you know, who does he take to head them, up, head them all up as a guy who denied him? He makes his mark from the weakest of us for the most powerful impact. If you would only lay hold of that truth, it will change you completely. That's why we respect leadership. Not because they are unique, but God has given them a role and a place that is very unique in their personality that he has formed, that he has framed, that he has shaped. There will never be another Billy Graham as far as I know. Somebody asked Billy Graham in an interview, I watched the interview and they said to him, there are many better preachers than you that I've heard, why did God choose you? <laughs> and Billy Graham smiled and said, when I get to heaven, that's my first question. <laughs> it's true. Why him? Why not you? Why not me? Why Saul of Tarsus, who from what we understand may have had either struggling eyes or struggling speech, we don't know what, whatever the thorn in the flesh was, God chose that man and made him who he was meant to be. If you and I can just come to terms and understand that he has a role for us to play, and when he plays that role in us, you will stand back in total awe, and you'll be the first one to say, why me? Why did you choose me to do this great task? I am finished now 45 years of ministry. And if my team would let me, I'd like to hang up my skates and now enjoy a little more time with my family. You know, I was not sure if I was going to make it here. I told your pastor several weeks ago, better keep praying because my grandson is, my grandchild is due that very weekend. And my daughter would not let me leave the home if the baby was being born at that time. I'm not kidding you, she's fiery. <laughs> she's a tiny little one. In Tamil, they call them a kanderi molaga, a tiny hot pepper, a tiny hot pepper. The smaller the hot pepper, the more fiery they are. And she'd probably say, you're not going anywhere, Dad, you're staying right here. But. She was wise and delivered the baby three weeks early, and we have. <laughs> so he, he, he's, he's given the very distinguished name of Jameson Robert. He's a tiny little guy. How do you call him Jameson? So we call him Jack. Right name. But I look at that tiny little guy, and I say to myself, what do you have in mind for him, Lord? What do you have in mind for him? And I look at my own life at age 17 on a bed of suicide, now 71. When I was 17, I thought 71 were dinosaurs. <laughs> now I'm the dinosaur. So I have moved the mark to 101. My mother-in-law is 97. She still tells me where to turn and which way to make it. 
She'll sit in the back seat and say, don't you think you need to be getting into the right lane right now? So one day I said to her, mom, I honestly want you to know, I don't know how I cover the globe without all your directions. Sharp as anything, sharp as anything, still having an impact upon people. You never retire from being a light. You are always a light. The limbs may begin to weaken, the eyesight may begin to dim, but you are in his hands. And so I want to say this to you. The nation is not in its happiest time but it is our time. It is our time. This is the time God has placed us. What are you going to do to make this a better country and a better world? If you and I would only grab that, every time I sit next to somebody in a plane, I never know how the conversation is going to go. But there are probably a few hundred people in the world today who are reading books and CDs that I sent to them because of a conversation we have had and people writing and saying, it has changed my life. You see, it's God through you. It's not you through yourself. So whatever you do, bring that pride and surrender it to him. Lay it at his feet and say to him tonight, I'm yours. I'm yours. In 1939, King George VI was going to speak to the world, but he had a stuttering problem. He worked with a speech instructor and nervously took to the microphone. But just before he took to the microphone, his 12-year-old daughter, who is the present queen, gave him a piece of paper with some words in it that she thought would help what he was trying to say to the world. Can you imagine that? A 12-year-old child. And out of the entire speech, people don't remember anything of what he said, but they remember this line. I said to the man at the gate of the year, give me a light that I may walk safely into the unknown. He said to me, go out into the darkness and put your hand into the hand of God. It shall be to you better than the light and safer than the known. Those words were given to her father by Elizabeth. I said to the man at the gate of the year, give me a light that I may walk safely into the unknown. He said to me, go out into the darkness and put your hand into the hand of God and it shall be to you better than the light and safer than the known. How do you do that? You do that by getting on your knees before God and saying, help me and help me to stay true to your word. Through the word and through your time in prayer, you put your hand into his hand. In prayer you speak to him, through his word he speaks to you, and that combination is powerful. May God bless you. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for giving me a hearing. The finger of God in all of history and Christ as its central figure how to change an arena of persecution into a platform of opportunity and the priority of a person over methodology. It's your individual life that God will use. And at the end of it, you'll be the first one to say, I'm amazed what you did with this big vessel. Will you pray with me? 
You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. We'd love to hear how this message impacted you. To share your story, visit CourageMatters.com and click on the Your Story tab. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking.